Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everybody. We have a special off-format episode for you today because, as you know, we are a podcast that is obsessed with romance, what romance stories get told and consumed and when and why. And there is a phenomenon happening in the United States right now, and that phenomenon is named Colleen Hoover. So we thought that we should pause and pay attention not just to the romance news from 210 years ago, but the romance news that is unfolding before us. And so what you're going to hear today is a conversation between myself and former host of Hot and Bothered, Julia Argy, discussing Colleen Hoover's most popular book, It Ends With Us, and the Colleen Hoover phenomenon in general. But before we jump into the episode, I do want to offer a trigger warning. It Ends With Us discusses rape, gun violence, domestic abuse, and suicide. And so we will be talking about all of that in the episode. Thanks so much for listening, and you'll hear from me and Lauren in Pride and Prejudice in two weeks. It Ends With Us by Colleen Hoover. As I sit here with one foot on either side of the ledge, looking down from 12 stories above the streets of Boston, I can't help but think about suicide. Not my own. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Julia Argy. She's back for this special episode of Hot and Bothered. Julia, it was your idea that brought us here. (laughs) Why were you excited to read this book? Like Twilight and Quarantine, my bad ideas have not stopped. (laughs) And this time it was Colleen Hoover. Not that she was a bad idea, but I made Vanessa read this book with me. I'd heard so much about her. I think her books are like 20 of the top 100 bestsellers right now. And they are five of the top 15 bestsellers right now. She is taking over everyone's consciousness but mine. And I thought, why not me? I want to get in. (laughs) I want to get in on this. However, like going to the bathroom, you always have to bring a friend with you. You can't go anywhere by yourself. I made Vanessa join along and we did a little readathon, but we did not discuss what we are about to say with each other. So this is fresh takes from the both of us. Yes. Before we talk about Colleen Hoover, Julia Argy, can I embarrass you for a moment? Please don't be that embarrassing. (laughs) You could just mention it, but like, don't be embarrassing. (laughs) So one of the greatest books of our generation is coming out in April. It's called The One. It's by you. It is 
romance adjacent, I would say. But for any of our listeners who like Sally Rooney, who like Lily King, who love thoughtful books about women, will love, love your novel, The One. Julia, can you tell everybody what it's about? So The One is set on a reality dating show, and it follows a contestant as she embarks on a journey to find love. It is interested in asking questions around what these shows are selling to us, what kind of performances those women put on, what performances we're all putting on. It is very fun and very deep. (laughs) Guys, there's a lot of thoughts in there. I actually don't have any more thoughts. They're all in the book. So if you'd like to hear from me about any subject I've ever thought of, please pick up the one. It is coming out April 18th, 2023, but you can pre-order it now wherever you get your books. And this episode is only going to be me talking because Julia does not have any thoughts about Colleen Hoover because they're all in the one. I saved a little stash for Coho. I was like, I'm going to need this for later. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so let, let's talk about Coho, which is what her fans call her. And if you are a fan of hers, you call yourself a member of the cohort. She's a really interesting publishing journey. She self-published first. Her first book slammed and then blogged about it and then slammed and made it to the New York Times bestseller list. She was a social worker before she became a full-time writer. These books are so popular that they often have sequels and prequels and different versions told from different points of view. Like people who are Coho fans are obsessive. She is best known for the book that we're going to talk about today. It ends with us. But like she's a powerhouse. She's really a publishing powerhouse. Yeah, she's really taken over the bestseller list and social media and book talk. So let's dive into the meat of the book. You've heard about the author. Let's talk about what actually happens. And in honor of the spirit of Twilight in quarantine, I propose that we do 30-second recap competition for the entire novel. I'm ready. Count me in. Three, two, one, go. So Lily is our main character, and her dad has died. And she now lives in Boston, and she's going to open her own flower shop. And she meets Ryle. And Ryle kind of seems like a dick, but they fall in love very quickly. Meantime, she's rereading her old journals. And you learn about Atlas, this young man who was homeless, and they fell in love. And they had a a lovely high school fling. Her dad was abusive. Then it turns out that Ryle, now that they're married, is also abusive. She gets back together with Atlas. She leaves Ryle. They have a baby. They being Ryle Ryle and Lily have a baby. Yes. Atlas is not part of the baby. Ryle and Lily have a baby. Thank you. Okay. Julia, are you ready? I am. On your mark. Get set. Go. So at her dad's funeral, she says, these are all the nice things about my dad. And then she says nothing. And then she um, meets this guy. He's a neurosurgeon. His name is Ryle. And they fall in love. They have a shotgun wedding um, at um, Las Vegas. And then he starts beating her up. And she's, like, not really sure about what she should do about it. Um, Her mom – she talks to her mom and Ryle's sister. And they say, leave him. She gets pregnant with Ryle's baby. She leaves him. She gets back to get with Atlas two years later. The only thing I would disagree with in yours is that you said it's a shotgun wedding, which implies that she was pregnant when they got married. And they were not pregnant. 
They just elope very quickly. It was a lope. It was a lope. You're so right. So, Julia, we missed a couple of things. One is that Lily, our main character, whose name is Lily Bloom, yes, she becomes really good friends with this woman, Alyssa, who it turns out is Ryle's sister. And so she's very close to her sister-in-law, and she has this friendship. And it seems to be her only friendship. She kind of has a gay friend who's, like, just there to be a gay sidekick for one scene. But other than that, Alyssa's her only friend. And my other note is her full name is Lily Blossom Bloom. Correct. And she's a florist. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Great. Okay, so we've outlined this plot for you, and I am wondering, Vanessa, whether or not you think this book is a romance novel. Okay, so the definition of a romance novel, according to like the Romance Writers of America, which is a complicated institution, but it really just has two things. One is that the love story is the main plot of the narrative, and the second is that the couple ends up together either in an HEA or an HFN, a happily ever after, or a happily for now. So the love story, because Ryle is abusive, the love story would have to be Lily and Atlas's love story. And I don't think that the Atlas-Lily love story is more than 50% of the book. From like gut feeling, I would say it's more like 30% of the book. And actually her abusive relationship with Ryle gets a bigger chunk of the book. And so because of that, even with the HEA with Atlas, I don't think it's technically a romance. But what it what it does have is an HEA and it has this like faded quality of the HEA. Atlas is brought up on the first page and then they end up together at the end. But I don't think it technically qualifies. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a a YA romance novella shoved inside what is otherwise this domestic abuse narrative, which I wouldn't classify any part of that as romance territory, but so much of this story is told via diary entry slash flashback about what happened with her and Atlas. And that, for the most part, is about their, dare I say, blossoming or blooming love for one another. (laughs) And then they end up happily at the end. So if you were to cut out the chunks about Ryle, which I would be happy to do (laughs) in a way, if I wanted a romance novel, that is what I would do. And I think I would if I just read the pages about Atlas and Lily. I think I would get one. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it's essentially two novels, right? Um, Lily is rereading these old journals, and we become immersed in the old journals, and that is that love story. And there's there's a threat of abuse in that other story because when Lily was a teenager, she was living in an abusive home. Her father hit her mother and raped her mother, and Lily was around that and even got hurt once that we see. But In the meantime, there is this love story happening between Atlas and Lily. And I think had I picked this book up, I should say, when I picked this book up and when I was thinking about this book, I totally thought it was just a contemporary romance novel Mm -hmm. and was surprised in the fact that I ended up really not thinking it was that, which made me think about what we think is appealing about this in a way that would amass such a like, ardent fan base around Colleen Hoover's books. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of theories, the most cynical one being 
the soap opera-ness of it, right? It's like very dramatic. And that level of drama, I think, is cathartic, even if you're not in pain for the same reasons that the characters are, right? Like there were cry moments, there are like swoony moments. It's it's like definitely an emotional roller coaster. But I I think that there are two fantasies. One is the Atlas Lily fantasy, right? Which is that like two people can save each other from really horrible situations. Atlas is homeless and is suicidal and is all but freezing to death when he meets Lily and like her small acts of kindness and then eventually her love kind of saves him and gets him to survive long enough that he can join the army, which we can talk about more if we want to. But he, you know, joins the military and is able to like get on his feet. And Atlas is there for Lily when she gets severely beaten by Ryle the time that she has to go to the hospital and actually runs away. She goes to Atlas's and they, they're they like continuing to save each other sort of through love. And I think that's one fantasy. The other one is the fantasy of the title, right? It ends with us. This cycle of abuse can end that like that's an empowering idea. I was interested in what you were talking about, and that is what I came up with when I was thinking about what makes this so appealing, is it does have everything in it in terms of content in a certain way. Like, as I was reading, there would be issues that would come up and I would think, this is enough for one book. And then you just get more and more and more Like, poor Atlas, you're reading through these diary entries and you're like, this guy has been served just such a crappy lottery number. And then the last diary entry was like, surprise, I was about to kill myself the night I met you. And I was like, how much worse can it get for these poor individuals? And there is this little coda at the end. It was so short. I'm not even sure I would consider it an epilogue where they do like meet each other on the street. And it's like, let's do the thing which I guess is very encouraging, but it does seem like the bulk of the book is about really difficult subject matter. And I guess feeling this kind of catharsis around having that all be resolved in your favor in a way, this kind of narrative of overcoming things, no matter how many traumas you're dealt with the violence and the sexual violence and the physical violence and the emotional abuse and the homelessness and the military industrial complex. It's like, and you can still get back with your high school first love. They really climbed a mountain to get there. And so, you know, if they can do it, why can't you? (laughs) That sounded very accusatory. (laughs) They did it. (laughs) I also think that these books have a palatable kind of liberalism, which makes them popular. Again, I'm not trying to take away from how readable this book is and how like on a page to page level, it's just like incredibly digestible. But I think that you can read this and feel kind of like you've done your good deed for the day. Like it has little PSAs in the middle of the books, which I like vaguely agreed with, right? She has this like pretty lengthy PSA about homelessness in which she's like, my dad thinks that everyone who's homeless is lazy, but not every single person who's homeless is lazy. And then one of the like standards to which Lily holds the men who she dates is that they donate to charity. 
which is like a liberal idea, but also conservatives like Republicans donate to charities. They're just different charities. She doesn't say like you have to donate to charities in this radical way to causes that I care about. And so I just think that there's like a almost like a Michael Jordan <laughs> quality to her where she to Colleen Hoover, where she's like Republicans buy romance it like slightly skews liberal in that it's like hashtag not all homeless people. But she has this asterisk at the end of that public service announcement about all the different things that causes homelessness that is actually quite conservative, that is like some people are lazy. And then it has this message about the military industrial complex that all you have to do as a homeless person is wait until you're 18 and join the military. And then eventually you'll be able to have a chain of really successful restaurants. It's a very American book in that way. It's like very middle America, old-fashioned, like, Texas Democrat vibe to it that, yeah, it goes down easy. It's like, you know, sugar-filled cough syrup. Yeah, I did find it very politically neutral. And I did read something in an interview to your point about its readability that Colleen Hoover said about her writing process, where she said she had ADHD and whenever she gets bored with a scene, she just like goes to the next scene. And so there is this kind of emphasis on scene and action in the text where the interiority is very secondary. The description is effectively non-existent. It's just dialogue where something happens and then you're on to the next thing with dialogue with something different happening, which makes the whole book move really quickly. It takes place over the course of like months and years, not even including the diary entry, like from when Ryle and Lily first meet at that balcony that Vanessa read to when they divorce is years later. Yeah, five or six um, years. Yeah. And so there is this incredible passage of time that happens on the pages where you are just hitting the dramatic moments. There's no, like, time passes. There's no lull. It's just, like, here are all the bad things and good things that happen in the order they happened and no break in the action, which I do think makes it incredibly readable and popular. So we want to talk about the abuse narrative before we talk more about the romance narrative. So I'm going to make you talk first. What are your thoughts about this as an abuse narrative? So I am very sensitive to violence on the page. And the first time Ryle and Lily meet, he doesn't know that she's watching him and he just tears apart a deck chair. He just savagely tears apart a deck chair. And then I would say, Vanessa, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong. Within 15 minutes of this conversation, he propositions her into having a one night stand. Yes. So the violence to romantic tension in the book, that kind of change and fuse length for Ryle is the same throughout. And so I'm always freaked out by this guy. I'm like, I don't want to yeah. see anyone beating up animate or inanimate things. That's yeah. not what I'm here for in my in my personal life, in my reading life. So it really foregrounds that 
from early on. Yeah, I totally agree. He is a scary asshole from the very beginning. The first time that they sleep together, he like picks her up and carries her off. And like not in a cute way, not that there is necessarily a cute way that I have found, but he is violent from the very beginning and very hot and cold, to your point, from the very beginning, which I think gets to the heart of what I found problematic about the abuse narrative. I think that there's an argument that Hoover is signposting that he's a bad guy in these more innocuous ways throughout and that that's really smart writing to do that. And then it turns out that he's an abusive jerk when you actually see him crossing lines that we can't even justify, right? We can't be like, oh, it was, you know, an inanimate object. Oh, he's just, you know, emotional, whatever. Except that one of the arguments of the book is that he has this like Jekyll and Hyde vibe to him where he's not always an asshole. He quote unquote snaps. And at the end of the book, she shares custody with him, with their daughter, because he's just someone who snaps. He is not actually, like, abusive on a day-to-day basis is the justification for this custody arrangement. But we have seen him be abusive on a day-to-day basis, beating the shit out of this chair on the opening page, carrying her against her will, being really up and down emotionally. And so I know that we're not supposed to be troubled by the custody arrangement at the end, but I, given the way that this is signposted, I find the ending very upsetting. Yeah, I had similar moments where I wasn't sure if what I was reading was what everyone else was reading or what was intended. So there's that moment at the end where, to me, it was like an open question as to whether this was a confined spousal abuse situation or whether this was a situation that where he could be violent towards other people. And that in the text is a closed question. And Lily seems very confident that this was just an interpersonal issue that they were having in their marriage. And I left the book not necessarily feeling that way. Similarly, earlier on in the book, there were moments when I wasn't sure how much his sister Alyssa knew about his violent behavior because there's a moment when she starts to warn Lily about Ryle's behavior. She says, I know my brother. I love him. I really do. Ryle interrupts and says, oh, like, what were you going to warn her about? And Alyssa says, she's my friend. You don't have the best track record when it comes to relationships. And I thought the writing was on the wall, like, He's a notoriously violent person in their family life, and Alyssa is trying to express that. It turns out Alyssa was just talking about whether he sleeps around a lot, which was actually what she was referencing, like his ability to be committed. But I, very early on, my antenna were up towards like, she's going to tell Lily that he's a violent person. And similarly, at the end, my antenna were up being like, There's this open question about how they're going to handle the daughter situation. And this little coda at the end has them doing a very peaceful, quote unquote, mature handoff of custody with their daughter, Emerson. This is all complicated by the post-postscript, which is an author's note from Colleen Hoover, where she expresses that this story is based on her parents' relationship and their domestic abuse and that her father 
was violent with her mother, but a very devoted father figure once they separated to her. And so that, in my eyes, is kind of something that I believe Colleen was trying to evoke in the text, but that as a reader, I didn't necessarily feel that same level of closure that I think Colleen felt in her own personal life. And so there was like a mistranslation there between what I was experiencing and what I think was intended. Yeah. It's also, you know, in that author's note from Colleen Hoover, she talks about this moment in which she told her father, Colleen Hoover told her father that her stepfather would be giving her away at her wedding. And what her biological father said to her, the abusive father said to her was, he raised you, he should give you away. Which is very different than the ending that we are shown in the novel. And I find the title very misleading of It Ends With Us if what Lily isn't going to do at the end is separate Emerson from her abusive father. The exact same thing is happening again. I would have liked this book so much better if it had been supervised visits at the end that Ryle had with Emerson. I really do find the abuse narrative troubling, especially given the title, that like this is supposed to be the end. I had another moment where I was not sure that it ended with us, and that is the concept of charity in the novel. So as you mentioned, one of Lily's favorite icebreaker questions is, do you donate to charity? Any charity. Do you donate any amount of money to any charity? Your local KKK organization. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Do you donate? So the reason she asks this question so much is because her father was a bad guy and her father did not donate to charity. Ryle donates to charity. Ryle's extremely rich sister donates to charity. And there's a moment in the book where Lily explicitly says when justifying Ryle's abuse, Ryle is compassionate. He does things my father never would have done. He donates to charity. Okay, so sets the stage for us to believe that any person who donates any amount of money to charity to any charity is a good person. Okay. However, to your point, Vanessa, despite it saying it ends with us, she meets Atlas at the very end of the book. And guess what she asks him? Do you donate to charity? Atlas laughs with confusion. Several. Why? So it does not seem that she has learned (laughs) necessarily the lessons that the text would indicate she's trying to gather. Charity is not the indicator of virtue that she believes it to be, yet she's repeating the pattern of thinking this is how you suss out good people and bad people, violent people and nonviolent people. Dare I say it does not end with us. And charity is not going to help you figure out (laughs) where it ends. So that is all I have to say. (laughs) That was my deep dive. Yeah, the ending, I find the ending really troubling. I'm compelled by this fact that she hasn't learned what metrics for goodness. Not that you can tell if someone is going to be abusive, right? Like that is like not an obvious thing, but that she hasn't learned that this charity question has nothing to do with whether or not someone is an abuser. And that she is letting her daughter be raised in regular custody with an abuser. 
it just really does raise this big question about whether or not the novel earns its title. I also don't like the way that abuse is tied to trauma. We're supposed to believe that Ryle is abusive because he, as a child, was playing with a gun that he shouldn't have had access to with his twin brother and accidentally shot his brother. And we're supposed to draw a straight line from that to his being an abuser. And I just don't like that. I don't like a single answer for anyone having any sort of behavior in the adult world. I do want to, I, should I start listing things I liked about this abuse narrative? Because there were a lot of things about it that bothered me. I do think this gun violence situation in the text, which is, we should add, what triggers the um, murder of the chair in the first chapter. He <laughs> was dealing with a patient who had sh- shot his brother. I think it was the exact same circumstance he was having. The having literal same thing. Time. So there is this idea that Ryle's backstory is different and perhaps more sympathetic to her father's. He's a more sympathetic guy, and that's what makes leaving so difficult. So I think part of this kind of, quote-unquote, humanizing work that Colleen Hoover is doing when trying to construct Ryle is to make the situation that Lily is more difficult to leave. He has this tragic backstory. He donates to charity. He's a rich, hot neurosurgeon. He lives in Boston. He he has a rich sister who donates to charity too. And so I do think part of it is trying to make him a very sympathetic abuser that she still needs to leave. I just don't find that realistic. Right. We don't know what happened to her father or why her father was abusive. And the problem with that is also that that means that Lily's mom was an idiot for staying because her dad didn't even donate to charity and wasn't even a handsome neurosurgeon and didn't even have a tragic backstory. So why did she stay? So in trying to argue why it's hard for Lily to leave, I feel like the implication is it should be easier to leave if they don't have these qualities. I mean, something I do like about the abuse narrative is that you really follow Lily's logic about this was a one-time incident. Okay, it turns out it was a second-time incident, but this time it was a really specific second-time incident. And you can follow her psychological logic as to why she stays. And I found that really well-written where, you know, it was – okay, it was really maybe an accident. He's either gaslighting her or it was genuinely an accident. She really fell. And the ambiguity of all of that and how somebody ends up staying through multiple attacks, I do think was really well done and very compelling. And I do think this, as I said, as someone sensitive to on-the-page violence is not my favorite aspect of the story, but it is very... It's like the violence is on the page. It's not like fade to black in terms of he sexually assaults her. You see the sexual assault of her mother in a very similar fashion. Mm -hmm. It's very scary in that way. And it does not kind of pull punches when it comes to exhibiting the kind of behavior that Ryle and Lily's father do. That's not totally a draw for me as a reader. But I do think that that is a strong point if you're going to talk about these issues with the frankness that Colleen Hoover is intending to do with this novel to have that actually be part of like what is going on. I do think that that is ambitious to do. And I do think she does a good job at that. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, Julia, something that we haven't talked about yet is that Ellen DeGeneres actually plays a very large role in this novel. Would you like to tell the people? So the YA novel that is shoved inside this book is formatted as letters to Ellen DeGeneres. Lily is a huge Ellen fan. This book was published in 2016, so before any news of what working with Ellen DeGeneres is actually like kind of has come to light since. So (laughs) Lily is big in on Ellen DeGeneres and writes these diary entries addressed as letters to Ellen, and she and Atlas really bond around Ellen DeGeneres. And Ellen stays a figure in their adult life, almost like a godlike status in their relationship where he has like box set of the DVDs recorded of different Ellen episodes. And the kid is named Dory. The middle name of Ryle and Lily's child is Dory. And that, might I add, is the pickup line of the century at the end of the coda being like, and I named my kid Dory because I still love you. That's paraphrased, but it's <laughs> she's a huge presence in the book. Yeah, and it's not it, – I didn't hate it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I think that when you, you know, were under the impression that Lily started this practice when she was young, when she was 12 or 13 and wanted to write her diary to someone, as listeners to Twilight and Quarantine might remember, I find first-person narratives very confusing often. And so the choosing a narrative voice to write toward, I think, makes sense as, like, a 13-year-old kid. And so it's cute. And it's, like, this foundational thing that they had together when they were in high school, right? And I find Ellen to be a fairly realistic thing for two teenagers to be talking about, I guess. I thought it was more skewed to, like, 40-year-old women. But, you know, I don't know the demographics of Ellen. and. I liked Atlas, so I'm curious about what you thought about their love story. Their love story is geared around first Lily making sure that he has a place to shower and then enough blankets and then a safe place to sleep. But it's also one of, like, great mutual respect and care in a way that also struck me as authentic for teenagers. I do think the YA part of this novel is actually quite good. The first thing that comes to mind is if the things that had a chokehold on me in high school were still this present in my adult life, I would have a child named Harry Styles. Like, (laughs) (laughs) And we would all be the better for it. That's apropos of nothing. (laughs) Apropos of everything. (laughs) But 
I agree that it was a compelling YA romance, fascinating epistolary YA romance novel. The epistolary aspect is not to the people in the relationship, but to a higher power. That is a bold craft move that I really enjoyed. However, I did think kind of in the vein of, I think, what a lot of YA contemporary romance writers are doing is validating the serious feelings of teenagers that they are undergoing difficult experiences, that they have resources available to them that they're able to draw upon, that they're compassionate, that they're interested in mutual aid. There was a lot going on there that I was very interested in reading about. Obviously, these poor kids are just out there legitimately suffering the worst fates two teenagers arguably could be going through. But I think that is ultimately what's appealing about it, especially with the little flash forwards we have to their growing relationship as adults, is that there is a real sense of resiliency there that is very admirable, kind of in like a finding refuge in each other kind of romance narrative, but also just a broader sense of having someone who can support you even when they're not in contact necessarily. That sense of resiliency stays with both of them throughout Atlas going to the military and Lily opening up her own flower business. That does seem like a very genuine second chance YA romance novel that takes up not a significant portion of the book, but a moderate portion. Yeah, I would read this YA book very happily. It could be called Dear Ellen. Genius. Okay, Vanessa, what is the name of your child if it was based on your high school obsession? Oh, my God. I think it would be Brad Pitt. Ah, That aged worse than Ellen. I know. I know. (laughs) Harry Styles is still clean. I've got like 20 years before he goes south. Okay, Julia, as we're wrapping up, we've criticized this book quite a lot. I know we both liked the YA element of the book, but I'm wondering if there's anything else you liked about this book. I loved the Boston supremacy in the book. (laughs) His award-winning restaurant name is called Bibbs, which stands for a little inside joke he and Lily used to have, saying that everything is, quote-unquote, better in Boston. And as someone who has lived in Boston or the suburbs most of my life, I was like, it is, guys. Don't take me to New York. I'm staying here. (laughs) What about you? I really appreciated the depiction of Atlas's homelessness. That he's just, like, a kid who, like, a bunch of, like, small bad things happen to. And, like, pretty quickly you're on the street. Like, one guy just didn't like him, right? Like, a stepdad figure just didn't like him. And, like, that was it. And because he was 18, he couldn't really get any resources. And just, like, how quickly in this country you can be on your own and out of luck. And I feel like that's not something that gets written about a lot. And, yeah, I thought that that was really well depicted. I also love this ongoing bit, which is that the very rich sister-in-law, Alyssa, there's like a joke that they're so rich that they just they have people for everything. And I liked pretending that that was my life. <laughs> like Lily at one point is like, you just had a party last night. How is your apartment so clean? And Alyssa's like, we have people for that. And I'm like, oh, imagine. I have people for that. That's the fantasy of this book. Do you have people for that? <laughs> I have people for things. I have you. (laughs) For me to clean your house. (laughs) You for conversations about books. 
Well, Julia, thank you for exploring this phenomenon with me. I am really excited to hear from our listeners. Please do write to us at theRompod at NotSorryProductions.com. I, I know that a lot of you probably love these books, and I would love to hear more about why you think it is that Colleen Hoover is so popular. And it was really interesting to explore this like hugely popular person and phenomenon. And thank you so much, Julia, for this another great idea. Thank you so much for reading this book with me. And thank you, everyone. We do really want to hear what you think about Colleen Hoover. And if there is a better Colleen Hoover book that you think we would like more, please recommend it to us. I would be interested in hearing what that is. Amen. Everybody really should go order The One by Julia Argy. It is a slight, delicious, wonderful, funny, weird, interesting, smart novel, and you absolutely should read it. You've been listening to Hot and Bothered. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks, as always, to our GM-level patrons, Viscount Elise Kemakaratnam of Unicornia, Baroness Gretchen Sneegas of Breakfast Carbston, Night Molly Reel of Worcestershire Sauce, the Countess of Kristen Hall, Dame Leah B. of Pickleshire, Dame Becky Boo of Tiaralandia, and Duchess Biddy Higgins of Bubble Bath. Thanks, as always, to Lauren Sandler, Lara Glass, Margaret H. Wilson, AJ Ramas, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. We'll be back in two weeks with our normal episode. We will be talking about chapters 30, 31, and 32. Darcy's visiting. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.